Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling, where I get to talk to incredible creatives about the small moments in their life that changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson, and today I get to turn the interview tables on a legendary broadcaster, journalist, and recent convert to a Welsh breakfast bap. Welcome, Larry Flick. Have you had a breakfast bap this morning? I have not had a breakfast bap this morning, but they are my favourite. I should they're ex- huge. I should explain that after many, many years, a lifetime of being a New Yorker, Larry has up sticks and is now in beautiful rural Wales and uh, and loving it, right? I absolutely love it. It's it, it, the UK. I mean, I've been I've been an Anglophile for the culture since I was in my late teens, many, many, many years ago. And uh uh, the UK and Wales in particular has been kind of sort of like my spirit home for many, many years. I'm married to a Welshie. And um, after all that went on in 2020, it was time to rearrange life. And so I finally just said, it's time to go. Time to be where my heart is. And that's that's the UK. I love it here. Brilliant! It's 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 perfect timing, actually. Especially now, it's uh, we're 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 recording in sort of mid-April, so the sun is starting to come out, and you know you're getting to see get that, and also just a beautiful fresh air. I mean, you know, I know you you love New York, and your heart is very much New York, but uh, you've you've been there, you've spent enough time there. I think you know this is you well breathe here the, a bit more. The New York of my love um has is no longer doesn't exist anymore i'm a native new yorker that's why i was born and raised yeah um and the new york of my youth the new york that shaped me we'll probably be talking a lot about my new york youth today um doesn't exist anymore you know new york is a very generational uh city and so it was very easy to leave new york to come here because my New York doesn't exist. It's a very Madonna, this used to be my playground kind of scenario. Um, and I'm ready for, and, and already savoring, even though we've been in lockdown for most of the time I've been here so far, I'm savoring just being in wide open space and the culture and the music. And like I was saying to you before we started recording, loving the the reset of like all things alternative in my uh, native country being in the mainstream now in my life, which is, you know, all things British were alternative in America during my formative years. Absolutely. So you took, I mean, let's start there. You know, you are born and bred New York. Yeah. Um, What was, I always like to find out what the music in your house was like before you actually started buying your own music. Well, I was very lucky in that my parents were super young when they met and got married. They were 16 and 17 when they took the leap uh, and got married. And I was born exactly 11 months later. It was very important in an Italian Catholic household to count the months Mm. so that everything was legitimate but also in an Italian Catholic household, you're meant to have children as quickly as possible. Uh, so 11 months later, I was born, that was 1963. And um, because they were so young, they were still very uh, absorbing of the culture. So my father was a hippie. He was a rock and roll guy. 
Um, and my mother was a classic pop music soul girl. So our house was filled with music. The radio was on all the time. Um, so that I was raised on Janis Joplin and, and Jimi Hendrix. My father had all of those records. My father was like the guy who taught me about long play albums. And my mother was a 45 single collector. And it was through her that I learned about great soul music and, you know, Ronnie Spector and, you know, the great, the great girl groups. And so yeah, there was always music playing, always a lot of music playing. And I took to it very, very quickly at a very, very young age. I often tell people that I was a DJ at the age of six because my parents, uh, again, being hippies, we had a lot of their friends passing through our various apartments because we didn't move a lot. Um, and they would have, have house parties every Saturday night. And uh, cause we had the big, my family had the big stereo, those big, those big coffin stereos with the lid that lifted, you know, and um, I DJed those parties. I would play the 45 singles that made everybody dance at the age of six. And I was allowed to stay up as long as they kept dancing. Amazing. So I would be up all night long. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would often be the last person who went to sleep in my family house because, you know, people drink, they crash, the floor in the living room would be littered with sleeping bodies, you know, who had been partying all night. And I would just kind of climb over them with my little pile of 45s, my little Jackson 5 records, and go to sleep. And it was, it was the music. I learned at a very young age the power of music to change and shape people's moods and personalities. At six, you don't know that. At six, you just know, oh, my God, they're clapping. Isn't that cool? They're dancing. Isn't that cool? You're not being told. You were, I was being treated like an adult um, because I knew how to keep everybody happy. And I like that. Love it. That's such a great, a great start. And you, when you actually came to buying music, I, I often say on on this thing that uh, the back then, kind of apart from your parents' record collection, the music that you had, or the music you listened to, was the music that you owned. Apart from listening to stuff on radio. So Absolutely. when it, but when it came to you finding your hard-earned money and spending money on records? What's the kind of first few records that you went? And was it a rebellion against your parents' taste or was it continuing no. it? No, it was very much a continuation. I remember vividly the very first 45 single that was bought for me as a gift yeah. was bought by one of my, my parents' friends that they wanted me to play at one of the parties. It was Crimson and Clover by Tommy James and the Shondells. Okay. And it was because I was obsessed with that <laughs> echo part. Um, and also I was fascinated by the roulette records label, which strode when it was fun. But the first record, uh, the first two records I bought with my own allowance, because you know, you know, when I was a kid, you were given an allowance. I bought um, the Michael Jackson 45 of Rock and Robin. It was his cover of an old 50 song called Rock and Robin. And I played it until it literally cracked, until the vinyl literally cracked. Wow. And then I had to have, buy another one. The first full album, full-length album I bought was Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 1. 
the one with the cover where he's wearing the white suit sitting yeah. at the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even from that age, looking back, I was somewhere teetering between my parents' musical tastes because my mother was, you know, Rock and Robin was very much the result of hanging out with my mom and listening to pop radio. We listened to the top 40 radio. And my father, who listened to rock radio, was very much a rock and roll fan. Uh, and so Elton was kind of like an extension of, of what I've heard coming out of the radio when he was home. Um, so those, those were, and they were very important records and they still kind of inform the music that I listen to now. Cause I really like a twee pop song, but I also am most attracted to, um, words and melodies and if i can't have the if i'm 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 not attracted to records without intimacy so i've never been good with wall of sound records or you know that kind of stuff i can get into big bold anthemic records but if i can't i can't climb into it and find even the most simple words to hang on to i'm not interested yeah and i just brush past it no i totally get that in your, you mentioned Elton. I mean, as a teenager, who were your kind of idols, heroes as pop stars? Who were the the people that you were looking forward to either hearing on the radio or seeing TV performances by? Um, I was really, I mean, Elton John was an early, early hero. You know, yeah, I eventually had a full and complete Elton John album collection. Um and I would be obsessively listening to like, you know, he was very, very uh, uh, keen on double record sets in his early career. So I would listen and I would, to me, the most interesting uh, side would be the third side, mm-hmm. which is where no singles were, but it wasn't down. I always found the fourth side be a little down. Yeah. So I would always be looking forward, forward to Elton John. Um, I was always interested in Donna Summer because I loved, you know, like I think... Most gay boys, although I didn't know I was gay at the time, I was very attracted to big female voices. <laughs> it's so funny how the subconscious guides you, mm. right? Yeah. So I was guided by, I was, I was very, very, very much attracted to female singers. I had a full Donna Summer collection. Um, long, I mean, I, I remember buying her first big pop records, but then I remember going back and buying you know, the Try Me, I Know We Can Make It album and all of that stuff, which never became pop in America. Um, I was um, mildly obsessed with um, Olivia Newton-John. Okay, good choice. And I, uh, I, I, I was obsessed with all things Michael Jackson. Yeah. And I bought all the solo records that he made that were not, that are not remembered now as being good records. Mm. You know, most people look at Michael Jackson and they think, oh, his solo career started with Off the Wall. But no, his solo record included a song about a rat called Dan. Yeah. It included a whole bunch of really very twee pop records. I had all of them. I was obsessed with them. And I was a big Osmonds fan. Okay. I think big the Osmonds fan. One of the, mo- I mean, one of my favorite Michael Jackson records of all time comes from that period, which is One Day in Your Life. <gasps> so good, right? If you talk about songs that connect, 
Yes. Oh my gosh. I was obsessed. And that was actually only in the UK, that was only a hit after it was kind of re released after the success, I think, of of, uh, of Off the Wall and and Thriller. And it sort of reappeared as a song. But it was the same here. Here, I'm in the UK. Yeah. It was the same in in America. It was one of those records that you only knew if you were a diehard. I think it was B side at first. America. Um, and it was one of those records that like, you know, the teen magazines wrote about. I was a big teen magazine reader when I was a kid. Um, but it was never like a big pop record. It, it came, I don't think it was ever really a big pop record in America. I know it was number one in, uh, here in the UK, but it was always sort of like a deep cut. Yeah. in america yeah was loved there, i mean all things michael were everything to me when i was a kid and when you were you know you're a big magazine reader obviously mm. was there every at that time was there a spark of an idea that you might end up being a writer or are you still very much wanting to be you know uh to, to to be going out i mean also were you by that point were you djing outside of your parents place were you djing in clubs <laughs> were you going to clubs <laughs> I never, my DJ career exists solely in my parents' living room. Okay, so you never, you never wanted to be a DJ. As in, I wanted uh, to be a DJ, but I never had the skill. I still kind of want to be a DJ, if I'm being honest <laughs> with you. I do. I want to be a DJ very badly. And if I could figure out how to do it, I would. Because I, but I look at DJing as being such an art form that I feel like it would be a bit of a cheek for me to try to do it now as an old queen who would just be trading in on my journalism career. Um, But no, I mean, I am. But hang on, just just to, just to pick up on that DJing is two things. One, there is a technical side of it. Yeah. Which I do do understand. But I think actually equally, if not more important is the ability to be able to read a room, which you have been able to do since you were six. So you would be very good. I mean, it's something that I really being, I don't think I've ever said this to anybody out loud, even my (laughs) husband. But I still harbor a deep fantasy of being a DJ. I, I think um, and if the opportunity arose, I would, even though I might make a fool of myself, if the opportunity presented itself, I would very likely jump on it because you're right. Uh, uh, the, the technical end is something that I'm not, I don't have any kind of background in. But to this day, I mean, I'm sitting here and on my other computer screen is, um, is uh, the Spotify streaming service. And I spend, my way of relaxing is to sequence playlists. Yeah. Because to me, one of the things I learned as a music listener when I was a little boy, becoming a deep listener of music, is not just the power of, of guiding a room, but the power that a record has, an album has, of guiding the listener. And so to me, sequence is everything. It's kind of a lost art form in this a la carte world we live in now. But, you know, when I interview music artists, the first thing I look for is the sequence um, for a few reasons. And I'll tell you a secret that that comes with that in a minute. But um, because I'm interested in what they really want to tell me. A good artist will tell you something unspoken in the sequence of a record. Um, and that's where the DJ skill comes in because a great DJ will do the same thing. Mm. A great DJ, like my favorite DJs have always been the ones who I want. If I, if, if, the, if 
if a DJ I love is playing, I don't wait until peak hour. I want to be there right at the beginning of the night. So I want to see where they launch and where they, where they think they're taking me and how I feel like it's changing based on the energy of the room. You know, and that's what makes like, your, you know, your, your former partner, Dave Seaman, so brilliant. That's what made Frankie Knuckles a genius. Um, that's what makes Robbie Leslie my absolute favorite DJ of all time because he just, he is magical behind the decks. And so it's like, it's a magical art that I've always wanted to try, but I'm afraid to. I think there's two things about that. I mean, the first thing is, is, one of my favorite DJ or oh, DJ groups um, uh, who have, have had two important gigs. One was supporting Kylie Minogue on Golden Tour. The second mm. one was DJing at my 50th birthday party and they're called Sonic Youther and they're amazing. And they do not mix anything and they only believe in radio edits. So they just segue stuff. Um, and it is brilliant. It's the best night out. It's a, it's a club that was uh, lives in Liverpool, but um, they've taken it out. And as I say, they supported Kylie on the arena tour. I mean, they're just amazing. And, and it's all about sequencing. So there's, there's that. The second thing I'd say is our mutual friend, Terry Ronald, um, has a similar love of playlists and music. And uh, he actually DJs, uh, well, uh, when we could go out and when we are able to go back out again, he DJs at a couple of local bars and he invested in a very simple piece of technology where he can just literally stream stuff from Spotify and it sort of does it all for you. So it's 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 not as out of your reach as you think. I think we're going to have to have a, converse, a sidebar conversation because te- because Terry, about and, this. And Terry wouldn't mind me saying this, but he's not the most technical person in the world <laughs> as it is. But we'll leave that. that we'll have that other conversation. This talk, conversation needs to happen because well, honestly, I I just felt a little tingle up my back because, you know, if I could work in, you know, like I never had the fantasy of working at a big club or like, you know, like David Guetta. I just think the idea of recreating the living room experience that I used to have as a boy. I love it. I would have so much fun. That would give me the pleasure of a lifetime. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, but I want to tell you something about sequencing, and I want yes, you, please. as the record producer, yes, to either confirm or deny my lifelong theory. Go on. The artist's favorite cut on a record is always track seven. Oh. Or thereabouts. I've not heard that before. I've I'm not... going to tell you why. Yes, please because, do. Because in making a record, an A&R artist and repertoire uh, representative will insist that the singles come high. Right? That's so true. You open, with your, you open with your hit. Yeah. You follow with your follow-up. You follow with your third. You drop a ballad. Right? Ballad's usually third or fourth in the sequence. Yeah. If you're a pop record, yeah. and then you have a couple of songs that belong to the label. Maybe there's a new writer you have to please. Maybe there's a producer you have to please. Maybe the uncle of the record company president has a, you know, has a song. And then you don't get to the songs that the artists love in a way that has nothing to do with commerciality until seven down. And whenever I am in an interview with an artist and I'm feeling a bit of a struggle, I always say, 
tell me, I want, you know, I often ask people to tell me about their songs and the, the, the creation of the song. And I always, always start with track seven. And I will tell you that nine out of 10 artists say, that's my favorite song. Yeah. And that has been the case for 36 years that I've been interviewing people. That's amazing. I'm now going to go and look at every album I can. (laughs) (laughs) And now in the the era, see, the track seven rule works in the era of double-sided records, cassette tapes, and CDs. As you get to longer playing records, it varies from like seven to ten, but it's usually the bottom third of the record is where the artist is telling you who they are from the purest sense because those are the songs that they that the label the record company is not completely convinced people will listen to yeah i agree with that so so it's considered um you know free zone yeah the bills have been paid that's my extra money to buy candy yeah I agree with that. I'm going to check that out. I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> so you're not a DJ, but um, I remember when you spoke to me, um, I asked you this question, but I, I just want to ask it again because I think it's a, an interesting one considering how much disco has had uh, t- has had an impact on your life. Mm. At what age and where was the first time you walked into a disco? I was 14. I remember this vividly. I was on my um, second date with a female gender girl (laughs) before I knew I was gay, before I acknowledged I was gay. We had gone to the theater. It was with the uh, Christmas present my parents gave me. And um, we went into a venue called Roseland. Now, Roseland was, until it was it was knocked down very recently was um, known as the having the largest dance floor in the world. Um, And it was, it was immaculately maintained. It was wood and it was waxed and shined. It was gorgeous. And Roseland back in, uh, let's see if I was 14, I was born in 1963. So it was like 1975 or six or something like that. Um, Seven, 1977. Uh, it was the beginning of the disco era. Right? Kind of, it was bubbling up. And every club, even a club like Roseland, which was previously a live music venue and mostly Latin and big band music, would on Fridays and Saturdays go disco from midnight to 4 a.m., which is when clubs close in, in New, York, New York. But if you got there and you wore a jacket and proper shoes, if you got there before midnight in a jacket and proper shoes, you could go in for free. And just hang out. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, when the, di- when the disco started, you just check your coat. So I went with my girlfriend. Uh, we went in for free. I was tall. <laughs> um, but I found out later, I also obviously looked gay. Because gay boys in New York walked into clubs at whim. Mm. Especially young gay boys. But at 14, all I knew was that I was tall. And I had fake ID. And yeah, the two things that were hot items in discos back in the 70s in New York were females and gay men. Yeah. So we walked in together. 
and um, Patrick Rodriguez uh, was the DJ that night. He started at midnight on the dot, and it was fantastic because it was this beautiful venue with live music and everything was like, you know, it was salsa night the night we went and it was, uh, everything was very orange and green and lovely. And I kept trying to imagine what it was, gonna, how it was going to look when Patrick came on and all of a sudden it got very dark, very moody, lots of blues and purples and reds and strobe lights and swirling lights. And the music was like, ten, you know, like countless decibels louder and I remember standing in the middle of the dance floor as it was filling up with, with my girlfriend. And I don't even know what she was saying. She was saying something. She was doing something. In my mind, she disappeared. And I was just like, you know how like when tourists go to a big city and they look with their mouths open at the buildings? That's what I did looking around the room. And it was the, it was like being, it was like being surrounded and wrapped with like the most warm energy. At the time, I couldn't put it into the words I'm putting now. At the time, all I knew was I never wanted to leave. And if I had to leave, I would have to come back, even if it meant coming back alone. And we went to Roseland every week until we started experimenting going into other clubs from that time on. And I was, so I was 14 wow. and, you know, being tall and apparently looking like a big old queen, even mm. though I didn't know, mm. got me into every club in New York city, including studio 54 once where I ditched my girlfriend at the door. That's <laughs> <sighs> I mean, <laughs> just decided. Well, I mean, what happened was, you know, back then, Studio 54 was all the tea. Yeah. And they had the, you know, the velvet rope story yeah, is yeah. true. You couldn't get in. It's all very true. And Mark Benneke. Fabulous. Yeah, Mark Benneke, who is now a friend of mine, because mm. uh, we worked together at Sirius XM for a number of years. He was at the ropes. And I was probably now, I was probably about 15, maybe going on 16. And um, <laughs> we would go, we would try, like everybody, we would try to find the right outfit. We thought it was like, you need the right outfit to get in. Yeah. And you'd wave. And, you know, and then after a while, you'd either give up and go home or give up and go to like the club across the street. Um, and one night after about three months of trying to get in, he pointed which was like the move like if you have the point you like it was a moment so he pointed he goes okay you can go and i looked at my girlfriend and i said we're in and i grabbed her by the wrist and he goes oh no not her <laughs> you you and she was like well we're not going how come i can't go in and, I, and, he, and he was like because i said so i remember every syllable of this moment it was a pivotal moment in my life, Steve. Um, and she said, well, we're not going. And I'm like, no, I'm going. I have to see. Because by then, there were news stories all over the place about, like, you know, the never-before-seen walls of Studio 54. It was a yeah. mystery. Yeah. I was like, I have to go. I have to find out. I'll find out for both of us, and then we'll try again. And once, I'm, once I've gotten in, 
in my mind, like I'm just babbling, right? Once I've gotten out, then we can, they'll let us in, but I have to go now. And she called me every vulgar word she could <laughs> muster. I handed her, my parents gave me $40, two twenties. I gave her one of the twenties and said, you can get a cab and I'll call you tomorrow. And I walked in and I could hear as I walked away, you motherfucker. And, you know, suddenly I didn't hear her anymore. All I heard was the music and I went, it went in and it was, it was a life changing experience for a variety of reasons. First of all, it was the first time I'd been in a disco by myself. Um, it was the first time I'd had a cocktail and walked, I was just walking up, I bumped into the bar and some shirtless bartender handed me a, gave me a free drink. It was a grasshopper. Mm. Nasty. Someone obviously must have, I mean, it was just there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just sort of stumbled around the room and I saw a corner of just beautiful gay men dancing with each other. And I'd never seen that before. And I was riveted. And I stood there like a, like a, moron staring like you know like a kid i was a kid so i'm standing there like a kid like with my mouth open my tongue hanging out you know and you know like one guy winked at me. i mean i didn't do anything i think i think i danced for exactly 30 seconds in the middle of the floor by myself and then i thought i can't dance by myself i look like a fool and i wandered around the club for about an hour and then i left but i left changed i didn't know why or how but I felt different when I left the club. That's amazing. It's the, and my girlfriend broke up with me for two yeah, weeks after the, that. The day you chose disco. I love it. So, <laughs> so did you at that point have a, an inkling of the fact that whatever happened, you needed to be involved in music as a career in one way yes. or another? Yes. Um, and I didn't know how because I couldn't sing and I couldn't dance and I couldn't play. And, you know, I went, I, I was educated largely by the, uh, the very poor New York City school system, which didn't offer things like music education at the time. And I mean, it, they didn't even offer driving school, which they had previously done. Yeah. 70s were a very, very lean time in New York City financially. So what do you do to, uh, to, to make that happen? I, I became obsessed with the idea of, figuring out how people got inside the box that was my radio mm -hmm. and how people managed to get inside the magazines that I read religiously. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I also kind of harbored this fantasy that I was going to be an actor. Um, and that was never, obviously that, that never happened. I went to school, I studied theater for nine years. Um, and although I didn't never became an actor, it actually helps me to this very day talk to people because I'm very shy. Yeah. Very, very, very introverted. But mm -hmm. the tools I learned as an actor, the tools I learn now, use now in interviewing people and in talking with you today. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, and, you know, because I went to, you know, poor school system in New York, they didn't have something called journalism. I just started calling people. I, knew, I noticed that every magazine had a, an office number. And I would just start to call and say, so how do you choose your writers? 
and I would get a whole wide variety because, you know, every magazine back then at least had a different procedure. And so I learned what the procedures were and I hustled and, you know, you learn pretty quickly that if you're willing to work for free, that you can, you, you know, this, the, the lower level publications will give you a, you know, give you an opportunity. So I worked, I wrote for a lot of local music magazines. And by then I was in college, had decided my acting career wasn't going to happen and started to pursue music as a vocation. And while I was writing for free, I applied for an internship at a record company called Gold Mountain, which was run by a very, very well-known industry executive known, Danny, known as Danny Goldberg. And I interned for him, and I wound up dropping out of school to work for him and tour with, uh, with bands, with his bands, uh, which led me to working with the band Kiss. And all the while, I was doing little freelance pieces, um, and then that job ended, and I went back to college and became the music editor at my school paper, and I did that until I landed my first job at Billboard, Billboard Magazine, as a part-time mail sorter. I was 25, I think I was, 25, 26. And it was, uh, I had been working uh, part-time at an insurance company and going to college and writing for free. And a job opening for, uh, mail sorter opened up a billboard uh, three days a week. It was a third of what I was making at, an insurance, at the insurance company. And in fact, uh, the insurance company offered me uh, a very big job around the time that I got offered the billboard job. The billboard job was like seven bucks an hour. Uh, and the insurance company was like $35,000 a year, which back in you know those days yeah. was like the equivalent of making $100,000 yeah. a year. And uh, I was living with my parents. They were very against me going after my writing. Because then, by then, writing had become my dream. Working in, in music became my dream. And um, I just said, listen, I'll give you money out of my paycheck every week if you just, like, don't stop me from doing this. And, um, and I did it. And I began the, the classic hustle of sorting mail three days a week until um, for three months got promoted after three months to full-time mail sorter. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time schmoozing and I became very good friends with a fellow named Bill Coleman, who was the dance music editor at the time. And I told him that I was desperate to write. I was desperate. How can I do it? How can I become him? I literally said, how do I become you? which is hilarious because, you know, I'm six foot two, white, chunky guy. Bill Coleman is like, what, five foot seven, thin black man. He thought it was ever so amusing that I said, how do I become you? And, uh, and then he gave me my first assignment at Billboard, which was interviewing uh, Joya Bruno from the band Expose, okay. the freestyle group. And from there, I was off and running. He became my mentor at Billboard until he decided to leave and, and, and literally walked into our managing editor's office and said, this is the guy. And 
what I find fascinating about that is that, as you say, your education as a writer, and you know, you are a writer, not anybody can be a writer, you have to be passionate about what you're writing about, but also you have to have the ability to write and you have to have the, you have to be eloquent enough. And, you know, especially when it's things like reviews, it, you know, there's so many, so many words that can be said, but all of your education as a writer have come from you being a fan of magazines and reading oh, yeah. magazines. That's yeah, how yeah. you learn really what to do by seeing other people doing it and loving it. Yeah. I mean, I read everything I could get my hands on. I mean, when I was a kid, I read teen magazines and then I graduated to like Rolling Stone. And, you know, like a lot of kids, I, you know, became obsessed with billboard. Um, and, and what I learned were the words that I liked. And it's a very strange thing to say, but I learned the words I liked and I found a way to remember to use those words when I was talking so that they would become second nature to me so that when I was writing something, the words would come to me. So I would memorize the words I liked and then I would use them. And to be completely honest, and again, I'm telling you things I've never told anyone before, I still do that. I still read a lot Mm. and I listen a lot. And, you know, people tell me I'm smart, but I don't think I'm smart. I think I'm clever. And when I say that, I mean... I, I'm, I'm very good at, like, absorbing. Being shy teaches you innately how to just watch, soak, and reuse if you need to. And so I learned the words that were pleasing to my ear that made sense coming out of me, and I figured out how to kind of arrange them. Um, I never took a writing class just like I never took a broadcasting class before I went to Sirius. Everything I've had success in happened by just figuring it out. But in a way, the class is, you didn't take an actual class, but the class was, no. you took your, you by, by, by consuming. It, it was, it was, you know, I mean, you know, I learn and still learn by studying the work of people like you, you know, like I, you know, I I have gotten, and this is not meant to kind of make you feel uncomfortable or seem like I'm greasing you up, but one of the reasons why I pursued you as a friend is, A, you're a nice guy. <laughs> if you're not a nice person, I don't give a shit. But I'm also Thank fascinated you. by your bravery to shift, right? Mm. You know? The law of the land is that once Brothers in Rhythm was over, you should have just disappeared. Mm-hmm. But you've actually had your greater success after Brothers in Rhythm. Most people who come up from our world, and you and I came up in the same world, mm-hmm. you know for a fact that most of the people you had, around, a lot of your contemporaries, are either still slogging away in the clubs because they have to, mm. or they've gone on to something else. It's the evolution, it's the reinvention that's fascinating to me. So the same way I absorb words, I also absorb trajectory. And so it was like following people like you, people like Dave Marsh, the music critic in America who literally saved my journalistic career when I was a young fella. Um, Following you guys taught me how to take the kind of risks I wanted to take and when to take them and how to take them. I'm still very frightened 99% of the time. Um, 
but I watch people make mistakes and then I figure out what their mistakes were and then I kind of try not to make them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, I think that's good advice for everyone. And I mean, I mean, obviously you mentioned Brothers in Rhythm there and, and one of the things that, that we did, that David and I did, yes, we made records, but also um, the, the, the trick, and I actually talked to Dave about this in, in another episode, is you know, Dave and I were both working in the same place and I was in the studio and he was on the magazine. And then mm. every so often we jumped into each other's worlds and our Bible, when we were writing for Mixmag, was your column. It was, you know, that's how I got to know of you. And But also one of the hardest things um, that, that we found, we, we wrote a, a little kind of column and then, but obviously we were writing reviews. And, you know, the, 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 when you talk about words, I think it's important to sort of realize that if you've got to review, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 singles, there's only so many ways you can say this is amazing or this sucks. Right. And you can't double up on any of them in the same week. So your vocabulary, your sort of thesaurus vocabulary has to increase. It just has to. You have to challenge it. And because. Or you make words up. Well, yeah. Or you make words up that become genres. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I gave Dave a really hard time about that because he was sort of saying all these kind of genres. And I was like, hang on, most of those are your fault. Like you christen <laughs> something a certain genre and then it turns into a genre. I know. And it's I so bet you've done because, that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because you have to. Because you have to. Because there are people, you know, it's sort of like in radio, we call them P1s, right? P1s are people who listen to every minute of a shift mm-hmm. of a DJ. Um. In, in, in writing, you have your P1s, but they read every week and they kind of will call you out, especially if you work for a magazine like Billboard. There are people whose whole existence back when I was there revolved around finding mistakes yeah. and calling you and saying, this is a mistake. And you didn't have email or voicemail during my era. That's how long ago it was. You had to answer the phone and actually talk to them. Um, so you had to be crafty and come up with different ways to do it. And being, it's funny, one of my favorite things to get over, and I got, it got over for six, six weeks. Um, I was such an Anglophile, I would pick up words from, from Brits, from mm. you. See, mm. you were reading me, and I was reading you. Right. And I was obsessing over every syllable in DMC. Okay. Every word. Oh, wow. And I would steal from you guys all the time. Okay. Well, that makes me feel <laughs> a little they, bit better. What? That makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> we... It was a mutual stealation. I love it. I love it. But, uh, but, you know, for six weeks, I described a record. It became a joke in my column. I described a record as being a butt shagger. Wow. Because That's no one definitely... in America knew what a shag was. That's definitely not one of ours. <laughs> No, that wasn't That's one of yours. But I heard the word shag from a British, from, uh, actually, I heard it from a fellow we both know, Mike Sefton. Remember okay. Mike? Oh, yeah, yeah. And Mike would be, Mike, Mike and I were drinking buddies. Whenever he would come to America, we would meet and get eviscerated. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, yeah, he's just a shagger, you know, whatever. And I just remember, I love that word. And I love the fact that nobody in America knew what the word means. Because in, in America, shag is a hairstyle. Yeah. So... <laughs> And so, you know, I'd always try to find ways to describe how a record makes your butt move. Yeah. So for six weeks, 
it took my it took my coffee desk six weeks to figure out that shag meant fuck. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't that they figured it out. It was that my editor in chief, my ultimate mentor, Timothy White, he figured it out. He was reading my column and he kept saying, what is this word? What is this word? What is this word? And finally, in a meeting with a guy named Adam White, who was our international editor at the time, he's like, Adam said, so, uh, you know, I really like Larry's column lately. It's very saucy. And he said, Tim said, yeah, you know, it's always really good. And he's like, yeah. Do you know what he's saying? <laughs> <laughs> And I was gently told to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, <laughs> I think, I think also around that time, I think it's important to remind people that you know the the industry, the dance music industry, as much as it was our world, it was my world, your world, Dave's world. It was still very much not on the in the mainstream. Really, it no. was you know the early nineties, you know, where we would have first met at the new music seminar, and around then you know, it was you, at the time you were writing, it was very much, this is a niche part of Billboard magazine. It's, to us, much. it was a Bible, but for a lot of people, it was, it wasn't the front cover. It wasn't that. But then under your, you know, as you were custodian of it, our little world, you know, where there was a, this girl called Madonna and she put a club track out and who knows, you know, all of a sudden our little world started to explode. And I think one of the, you know, the, one of the biggest, reasons for that were the producers and the DJs from the dance music world moving outside of it and working with bigger acts. Um, you know, we share, I'd love to say a friend, I never unfortunately met him, but my, as you well know, my hero and biggest inspiration as far as playing keyboards is concerned is David Cole. And I think CNC Music Factory, it was almost around that time where they started making their own records. Yes. And, and I mean, as far as I remember, you were not only were, were in with them, but I mean, you were the first person, I think, to even write about Mariah Carey. Yes, I, I was very lucky because, because no one was looking at dance music uh, as viable, or, and it wasn't a very pop time. It was very rock and roll, R&B time. People were very, very interested in this new thing called hip hop, um, which wasn't very new. Um, I, because I was not only just a dance editor, I was also the single reviews editor. Yeah. And because I became, uh, because I was uh, a one-man band in coverage, I, and because the whole scene was very lean and mean, I became friends with all these guys. And they would call me to their studios, or call me to their offices, and they would say, you know, uh, Rob and I, I remember David calling me over to his house once. David and I were really good friends. Uh, rest his soul. And I remember him calling me to his house and saying, so Rob and I are going to start a band and um, we want to, we, we have this whole factory image. And he played me, going to make you sweat. And he goes, the problem is that we don't really know what we're going to do with Martha because we can't sell Martha. Um, but, you know, there were millions of those kinds of stories. And so I got to break those records. I got to you know, they would come to me and say, we want you to give us a coolness because you're the dance guy and dance was cool. Um, that will help us go to radio. And so as a result, I got to be the first guy in the world to write about 
CNC Music Factory, Finally by C.C. Peniston. I remember listening to a demo of Finally in Manny Lehman's car. Manny Lehman, great DJ, great a r guy. And he played me a demo and it was just a drum beat and her. Mm. And you could still tell it was a classic. Um, I remember, you know, being called and being told we have this young girl. We're going to dye her hair blonde. Her name is Britney Spears. Mm. And it was Baby One More Time. And I remember um, an executive from Sony Music coming to my office and saying, Tommy Madonna has a priority for you. No one's heard this yet. Can we play it for you in this other room? We went to the conference room. They played me Vision of Love by Mariah Carey. And they said, we need you. We need you. We need you. And I was like, well, that's easy. It's a great record. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, you guys are going to make me look really smart because it is a great record. Mm. And um, so I have, a, I, you know, when I was at Bill, but I had a lot of those moments. Very grateful for that. And I'm lucky because I was able to have those moments at Sirius as well. Uh, different because it was more competitive. But, it, and, you know, and in retrospect, more fun at Billboard because we were, we were, Steve, the modern day, we were the punks of that moment. Mm. We were the upstarts. We were the rebels. We represented the others and I loved that. And I missed that. We were the others. We, you know, the punks had gone mainstream, right? Um, you know, Henry Rollins made a record for Electra Records, you know, and the world called him a sellout. But we were still doing cool things. And we've become the innovators. We, you know, I remember my late mentor, Timothy White, calling my column. And he came to one of my conferences and said, I get it now. This is the lab. This is yeah. the science. This is where the science experiments are, and you're doing something that's going to be really big in 20 years. And 20 years later, we started to see number one pop records. Long yeah. after I left dance music, but I mean, yeah. he was right. You know, so you know, I mean, and 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 yeah, I think that, that that's why we savor that period so much, and why even though you and I are doing very different things now than we did then. I think we both have a lot of pride in that period because we knew we were doing something that nobody was doing, you know? And I was obsessed with you and Dave because you and Dave, and again, I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm going to uh, is you and Dave were like the yin and the yang. To me, a Dave Seaman set was the, the dance equivalent of going to a punk club. Mm. You know, I would go to Frankie Knuckles for romance. I would go to Junior Vasquez for the feeling of sex. And I would go to a Dave Seaman set to work off anger and steam. And I would always leave. I haven't been to one of his sets in many years, but I was going to one of his sets to kind of exorcise myself of demons. And so to take that and then have him go into the studio with you who knew the beauty of melody and piano and all of that stuff, that was revolutionary to me as a listener, as a journalist, as a, as a quote, curator of dance music. That was revolutionary. Someone had finally figured out how to take the punk nature of tribal club music and the melody of classical music and pop 
bring it together. No wonder people like Michael Jackson wanted to work on these records. And so when you guys started doing that, that gave me the artillery to go into my editor-in-chief's office and say, you need to take what I'm talking about seriously. Look at these guys. Yeah, that's interesting, though, as well, because, uh, again, I always try and kind of bring these things up on, on, on this show about it seems to anybody now that remixes have been around forever and ever and ever. Um, and, you know, they've been around for a while and obviously the, the, you know, the disco remixes were happening, but major artists, I mean, the establishment, it doesn't get more establishment than, than Epic Records and Michael Jackson. You know, the idea that our little world would be allowed to work. I mean, I remember the first Michael Jackson remix that ever happened. I mean, it was, a, it was, I mean, when we got asked to do one, we couldn't believe it, but even the first time those multi, you know, when they said the Michael Jackson estate and Sony in general or Epic as it was then said, okay, actually we need this market and yeah. we need, we need to do that. And, and it was, you know, to a lesser, possibly a lesser extent us, but I mean, it was David Morales. It was, it was Robert and David I and mean, Robert and David's mix of black and white is still my favorite remix that anyone's done of anything ever. Um, and, you know, and Frankie and people like that, where they are looking at this little world, which it, it really was little. And as you say, it was quite punk and it was these great labels like deconstruction and these record, you know, but them seeing that they needed this part of the market to kind of, uh, to, and they needed that dance thing because ultimately they had pop, but they needed this to be able to cut through. Yeah, well, what happened was from my estimation, and I may have the dates wrong, so forgive me for this, but my timeline um, is it, a lot of it began with the Masters at Work remix, re-recording of Losing Myself by Debbie Gibson. Debbie Gibson had put out this record uh. And it was her adult record. She had dimmed the color of her blonde. I remember it, yeah. And it bombed. (laughs) It was was a good record, but it nothing, nothing. And Atlantic Records had spent a fortune on that record. And that was actually when I met Debbie. Deborah, she has to be called Deborah. Um, And they were like, okay, we we need this record to chart somewhere because they had Diane Gibson, Debbie's manager, and her mom, up their asses and because they weren't charting a Debbie Gibson record. And back then this was a big deal, right? It'd be the same as if a Rihanna record wasn't charting. So they, uh, the, uh, the guy who was running the dance department at the time, I believe it was Joey Carvello went and down, went to Louis Vega and Kenny Dove who were, you know, masters at work. That was the team name. And they were, you know, having big records as, as a team. And he goes, Write it, create a track, and sample her. Doesn't have to be the song. Just create a track. Put her on there. We're going to put it as a Debbie Gibson record, and let's see what happens. And it went to number one on the club chart. And then it went to number one on the sales chart, which means that people bought it. And then they put out an edit. They didn't do anything. But then all of the major labels started to see that you could save a record that was dying with a remix. Hmm. And then people like Michael Jackson's team, like Madonna, you know, who uh, obviously spent her life in the clubs, were seeing that, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. We could have a cool factor 
we could make more money, we could have a, you know more number ones on different charts if we start hiring these guys, whether they be Masters at Work, David Morales, Brothers in Rhythm, whomever, and we could have, you know, the quote, multi-format hit. That's when, you know, 12-inch singles started selling like crazy. Then we started getting cassette singles and CD singles and all that. And that's where things like, you know, you guys doing Michael Jackson came in. But at first it was, and that's also then when we started to get actual club artists like CC Peniston, CC Music Factory, et cetera, because then it was like, oh, wait a minute. Do these guys who save our records know singers? Can we just like not spend a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand pounds on some pop producer who's not even going to give us the hit because we're going to have to go to masses at work to fix it? Do they know anybody? Can they make a record for us? Do they know how to do something that's three and a half minutes? And that's when everything really blew up. And that's where you get that beautiful moment that whether it's um, Robert and David producing and writing for Mariah or that fantastic thing, the obvious example of Shep Pettibone yeah. going from remixing Express Yourself to producing Vogue. And, you know... He will never have to work another day in his life because he made that one record. Yeah. Yeah, although he made about another thousand <laughs> remixes well, yes, before because, that. You know, the money's good, right? Until the money's good until it's not good. Um, do you, do you, do you I'm just, talking about that record? I mean, obviously there was a there was a cultural thing here, but I mean, do you remember when you first heard Vogue and realized what she was doing and the fact that it was the first oh, time yeah. that that she had had said had really because obviously she's always been incredibly on it, but the first time she she'd looked at the ballroom thing and thought, "That's where I'm going." It's very funny because there was a duality in New York City about that record, right? So you had the people who were white and straight or white and gay but not cool who were like, what is this thing called voguing? And then you had the black, brown, you know, multifaceted queer people of New York who were like, we've been doing this for years. How dare she? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh really because it's like yeah. when, you, when you sort of watch things like pose it kind of almost com- comes across of the fact that it's there you know there's an element of it that celebrate the fact that they're celebrating it puts them on the map and there was very much that yeah. but there were also people who were like she's not you know there was a lot of criticism about like sort of video where you had everyone kind of doing the dance in a line yeah in you know in like you know in in, in perfect you know coordination that's not how voguing goes voguing is like a yeah, battle right yeah. so there was a lot of criticism there were a lot of people deep in the community who were really like how dare she and then there were people who got it there were people who understood that what she was really doing was mining outside culture for you know some people would say it would be for money. Other people would say for anthropological, you know, cultural exposure. You know, uh, the Vogue in New York was a very controversial record until it went to number one and then everyone loved it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. At Billboard, as well as the column and the reviews, um, I'm guessing there's 
other articles, other things you're working on. Uh, you're, you're in, do you start interviewing people as part of Billboard? Yeah, I mean, I eventually um, I started, you know, I started, first I, first I just interviewed everybody I could get my hands on for my dance column. And then I started interviewing younger pop artists for the front of the magazine and music executives. Everyone had to double as a news reporter. Yeah. Um, and cover the news of the industry. And then Madonna talked to me. This is where I thought I was, you know, I was going to say, let's, let's carry on with Madonna. I mean, there, there's a, I mean, what were your first impressions? I mean, I mean, firstly, um, like you said you've interviewed, you'd interviewed kind of smaller people, but am I right in saying that's the, the biggest? That was the oh. big one. That was the one. But, you know, here's what happened. That was very controversial at the time. So I had become friends with Chef Pettibone mm-hmm. because I was the dance guy at Billboard and he mm-hmm. was, you know, the king of clubs. Mm-hmm. And he, I, he was working on the Erotica album with her, um, was under very tight wraps. But he played me a couple of tracks at his uh, home studio where they were recording. They recorded most of his tracks were all recorded in her, his home studio. Um, and, uh, so he played me some of the tracks and I would just say, oh my God, this is amazing. It's club. It's cool. It's, it's all these different things that she hadn't done yet. And I said, I just need to meet her. I need to meet her. Um, and at the same time I was, so I was working him, but then I was also trying to get close to Madonna's publicist at the time, Liz Rosenberg, legendary publicist. And, um, so I was working both sides of the room. Uh, I met Madonna at one of Steve's then legendary birthday parties at a rooftop penthouse thing. Um, I was struck by how minuscule she is in stature. She's about five foot two, mm-hmm. very little. Um, she was very friendly. She said something funny about the guy I was with. And then we didn't talk any further. Um so while, while Shep was keeping me posted on the album, I was working Liz. Liz had negotiated with me that I could get Madonna if I did her a favor and interviewed this new artist named Seal. <laughs> okay, bonus. <laughs> so, you know, I interviewed this unknown artist named Seal. Mm-hmm. Crazy becomes a hit. So I'm starting to look very, very good, not only in the industry, but to Tim, my boss, um, I'm told that I'm going to get Madonna, but that Madonna did not want to do. And everyone's like, "You're going to, it's going to be a cover story. And Madonna didn't want to do a cover story. Madonna wanted to be in my column because my column was where the cool people went. Yeah. Right. That's where, that's where you read about finally first. That's where, you know, that's where you read about Britney Spears first. That's where you read about a lot of these very hip number one club records first. Erotica was her club record. So she would only agree to talk to me if we did it as a club exclu- as a club column exclusive, dance tracks column exclusive. And we did. And everything changed. We got pickup in magazines and newspapers around the country, around the world. Um and I became very quickly an A-list interviewer. Suddenly, because of the way the column read, um, Tim said, okay, uh, are you ready to do more? And I said, yep. And so from there, I started interviewing more and more pop stars and more and more rock stars. And, and I ultimately interviewed Madonna 
five times for Billboard, five or six times. He stole her for one of the records. Um, but, you know, because at Billboard, you would claim an artist and it would be your artist until mm. you died or they died. Um, and yeah, but she was, she, you know, was always very nice to me. Um, I haven't talked to her in a few years, but I ultimately have interviewed her nine times. Um, and every conversation includes a conversation about clubs and about the new DJ. So I always make sure I know who I'm talking about mm. or who's really hot before mm. I interview her. And like, you, you don't only have to do homework about her and her music. You have to do homework about culture in case she asks you. And yeah. she, for me, she always did. She would always be like, okay, what are your five records? And they had to be records that no one knew. Otherwise, she'd be like, yeah, once I said, uh, I mentioned the Olive record. She goes, yeah, it's old. That's shit. Yeah. And I was like, crestfallen. (laughs) So from then on, I kind of, you know. It was very cautious. But I, I imagine that's a starting off. I mean, obviously you've done smaller ones, but actually having her as your first big one. Um, yeah. Even though... Terrifying. Ob- it, yeah, terrifying, but obviously it did go very well, and that's as yes. much about what what you bring to it and how, you know, anyone that I ever speak to, any pop stars I speak to, when it comes down to you, they'll always bend over backwards to do it because they just think it's a beautiful chat. It's going to be a lovely time. You make it very warm. You make it very inviting. You ask questions that other people don't ask. It doesn't feel like a junket. It feels like a nice kind of chat. But also because Madonna is Madonna, pretty much anyone after that, it's got to be a piece of cake, right? Yes and no. Well, not Uh, everyone. (laughs) Not everyone. I mean, you know, some people make you more nervous, right? Like Madonna is the only person I've ever written down my questions for um, because because she's so unnerving that you're, you know, I'm always afraid that I will lose lose track of where I want to go. Otherwise, generally, I never write my questions down. Um, I listen Mm. and pray. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I will say that two people that terrified me more than Madonna were David Bowie, Uh, whom I ultimately interviewed twice. And that was because he, he called to berate me initially. And then we talked (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, and Bono. But uh, but uh, David Bowie, I don't know if you remember Palace Athena. You remember Palace Athena? Yes. Well, Palace Athena was not supposed to be identified as a Bowie record. And I found out it was a Bowie record and said, hey, this is David Bowie's dance project. And he Oops. was like, what do you do? And he literally, literally, I'm sitting at my desk. <laughs> Ring again our voicemail held 10 messages at the maximum. We did not have email. Mm. Ring. Hi, this is Larry Flick. This is David Bowie. I'm like, no, it's not. That's very funny. Who is this? Because you have just torpedoed my club project. And I pretty sure I shit myself. And then I said, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is my job. And he laughed. And he goes, well, you did fuck it up. He said, but I admire your nerve. 
if you want to talk to me, talk to me. And I interviewed him on the fly for my dance column. He didn't want to page one story. There's another guy who wanted to be in the dance column because he was trying to do a cool thing. And um, yeah, I was a very good guy. I was a very popular guy at my magazine that day when I went to Tim's office and said, I just hung up with David Bowie. <laughs> That's brilliant. So he's scared. And then he actually, uh, the, the next time we talked, I can't remember what record it was, it was for, but it was him talking about, we were on the phone, never met him in person. Both times we were on the phone and uh, he was checking his email while we were talking. He goes, you know, I'm very excited about this whole idea of website sharing music. Mm. And I'm like, yeah. what are you talking about? No one's going to want to get music off of a website. Yeah. He was a, <laughs> I remember he was an early adopter of all that stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. So, so he was like, you know, there's this technology called MP3s. You should really need to look into it. It's how I'm going to do my music in the future. Yeah. And that I put in a page one story in Billboard. Yeah, that is a page one story. With five executives, including Tommy Matola and Doug Morris, saying it's never going to happen. Wow. Did you, yeah. did you get to, um, I'm sure you did, but I'm um, just going to pre-say it, pre-say it in case uh, you didn't, but did you get to finally talk to these childhood heroes like the Donna Summers and the Olivia Newton-Johns and the Eltons? Yes, yes. I mean, I'm that must very, have been very... incredibly special for that young boy that was listening to those records. I will tell you that um, I, when I met Donna, I had been hired to write liner notes for one of her compilations. She walked into the room unannounced, and I was like this, trembling. I bet. And we became very, very, very good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I called her the diva and whenever I, I would call Bruce Sudano, her now you know, widowed husband and I would say I need the diva and she always always came to the table up until the year before she died mm. We were. she was the one who put me in her VH1 behind the music um, which was another big career boost mm. um, and um, I'm so 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 grateful that my career could have ended the day I became, I, the day I had her phone number and could call her or when she called me at home the first time and said, it's the diva, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and the first time I met Olivia John, I, I cried. Um, because, you know, when, when someone walks into the room and I'm sure this has happened to you because you've worked with so many amazing people. Think about the first time Kylie walked into the room mm-hmm. and you look at her and the first thing I thought was, you look like Olivia <laughs> Newton-John. Yeah. And that was actually what I said to her. I said, oh my God, you look like actual Olivia. And she's <laughs> like, because I am actual. I'm like, yeah, but you know what I mean. She goes, I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm like, but you look like her. Yeah. And I was like holding my hands up the way I'm holding my hands up right now in the room. Yeah. And she was like, well, do you want to touch me? And I'm like, <laughs> my hands up to my face and my chin. I was like, can we shake hands? And she goes, how about a hug? And, and that's when I sobbed a little bit. And I've interviewed her about seven times. I interviewed her in November. Um, we talked many times about her cancer battles. Um, 
And uh, she introduced me to her daughter, who's had a very rough time in life. And I became kind of an advocate for her daughter and very good friends with her daughter, Chloe. Um, yeah, it's the good part about it all. Sometimes you meet your heroes and they're assholes. Mm. I have been exceedingly lucky. Exceedingly lucky. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it's because... I, because I came up in this like really kind of junk poor blue collar life in the Bronx where nobody expected anything to happen for me. I never had the chance to become posh. I never had the chance to become fancy. I never had to, I, you know, I'm educated, but I'm not educated. You know, I went to school. I went to school until I wasn't going to the school. You know, I went to a city college. I went to a city college, you know, because I never had any kind of frosting on my cake, I just always behaved like my cake had no frosting. Mm. And, you know, and so in some ways it's hurt me in my career because I think in some ways I'd probably be wealthy and famous. And instead I just kind of opted for having a, a group of people like and respect what I've done um, and enough money to live in a cute little house in Wales. Um, but it's also made me kind of the guy, I, you know, when I walk into a room and I interview people, I know what they need to tell me. So I let them tell me that right away. And then I just go about asking them what I personally want to know or what I need to know based on what's happening in my life at the time. Yeah. So that after I had my heart surgery, I asked a lot of big life mission questions. Um, during COVID last year, I asked a lot of what happens in five years if you can't do this anymore? Um, and, you know, and not always in those words, but kind of because if, if you make them kind of too big, too poncy, they won't go for it. But if you, if you just say, okay, so I don't know about you, and you have to set the table and kind of give your example, right? So I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time with my bleeding foot up on a table, having had two operations. I have a lot of time to just sit and think about all the time I've wasted. Yeah. What do you wish you had done? And yeah. they just kind of go, what? And I'm like, well, you know, tell me about the last day you wasted time. Hmm. And suddenly, you know, and the other thing, while I'm just pontificating, is you never ask the thing that everyone expects you to ask. So like if you, for example... This is a trick I learned many years ago. A girl named Ashley Simpson, very popular in America, uh, legendarily got busted for lip syncing on Saturday Night Live. Uh, she had to do interviews, but you know everyone was terrified that people were going to ask her. Um, I was fifth in the rotation at Sirius. The fourth, every every per, each of the four asked her about the lip syncing. She wouldn't talk about it. She was very upset. She was very, she was about to leave. And the publicist was a good friend of mine. And I just said, just tell her, it's okay. I'm not an asshole. I promise. Sat down, talked. Within three minutes, she knew I wasn't an asshole. And she told me about the entire day. They will tell you if you don't ask. Mm -hmm. I've had people tell me about their divorces. I've had people tell me about their autistic children. I've had people tell me about their cancer. Kylie and I have talked extensively about her 
bout with cancer on days when she didn't want to talk about it. And it's because I didn't say, so tell me, Kylie, what's it like to have cancer? Yeah. Fuck off. If someone asked me that, I'd be like, fuck off. You know, so I was just like, so tell me about like the last really great day you had. And somehow she would, she would liken it to her worst day. Mm-hmm. And the worst day being cancer. Yeah. And I would say, well, we don't have to talk about that. She goes, but you know what? Let's, let's talk about it. Mm. That was literally what she said. She goes, you know what? Let's just talk about it. Yeah. I trust you. Let's just, just do it. Yeah. And but, we wound up sitting there holding hands, you yeah. know, it's just being a decent person. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. I get that. So what's your, you talked a bit about Sirius, which was the next job. Just explain a bit about the trajectory between where you got, how you got to the, from the end of Billboard into your next well, career. Um, sadly, Timothy White, my mentor, died of a heart attack in the elevator at work. Um, and uh, so we got a new editor-in-chief, and he was a terrible person. But he also had a different vision for the magazine. Timothy had built a magazine that catered to the Entertainment Weekly reading audience. In America, Entertainment Weekly was the first magazine to combine consumer gossipy bits with industry information. Timothy wanted Billboard, and he made Billboard into that kind of a magazine where you would have these great conversations with Madonna and Bono and Mariah Carey and all these people, but it would also have the nuts and bolts of marketing and sales and, you know, retail and industry. When he died, that died with him. I was his, uh, I had become his like fourth in command. I was managing editor, talent, uh, uh, managing editor, deputy editor, and uh, I was the senior talent editor. I elevated out of club music by then. And uh, my whole job was writing about artists. And when he died, they said, we're not gonna do artists anymore. So after a year of not doing anything, um, they uh, fired me. And this thing called Sirius Radio was happening. And uh, I have a friend who worked there. And I thought, oh, I'll be a writer for one of the hosts. Never thought I could be on the radio. And um, they had me on because they fired their morning host on the gay channel, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, the guy who was running the station at the time said, you know what, we're, we've already picked the guy we're going to hire for this job. Um, so just go in and have some fun. We'll pay you. Uh, we could talk about giving you a weekend show or a writing job. I you know, left Billboard with a huge severance, and I was going to take some time off. So I went in, and I, they paired me up with this girl who was also very new. And they said, just go in and have some fun. Act like you're at a bar talking to people. So I did. And a guy came in, different guy came in. I didn't know at the time was he was coming in to take over. Um, and he goes, that was really weird. That was kind of cool. Can you come back and do that tomorrow? I'm like, sure, you're going to pay me? And he goes, yeah, of course. Well, I'm like, okay. And uh, so that next day, which was a Thursday, came in, did it said lots of vulgar things because it was satellite radio. You could say whatever you wanted. And um, he said, come back tomorrow. Let's do, like, let's finish the week. And I'm like, okay. And then on Friday he goes, um, come see me Monday after. We want you to work Monday show. And then come see me right after. And they hired me. 
Yeah. The guy who was supposed to get the job didn't get the job. Mm. And so that was exactly four weeks after I got canned from Billboard. And uh, it was like starting all over. You know, couldn't get any interviews. My, I would interview pasta sauce manufacturers and shoelace manufacturers if they were gay. Mm. And, then, um, and then I got lucky. Someone I knew was like, this is where you are? Oh, my God, how cool. Mariah's available. Do you want to talk to her? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and uh, and that, that started the rebuilding. And after about a year of a lot of dues paying, I got Kate Winslet to talk to me, which was a huge deal because she was an actor, not a musician. And from there, I got Adam Lambert fresh off of Idol and he very famously kissed a guy on the American Music Awards he did my show the following day he had already done literally 25 interviews talking about the kiss and I said I'm not going to talk to him about that and my boss was like you have to talk to him I'm like I'm not going to talk to him about that and he goes you have to um, we've had this banter back and forth and I just said yes I'm going to do that knowing that once the mic is on what is he going to do run in and turn my mic off so I didn't ask him about it, and we were having a good banter. And I leaned in, and I just suddenly thought, were you ever fat? <laughs> like, you sit like you're, you used to be fat. As a fat guy, I know this. He was like, yes, I was. How do you know that? And I said, well, you sit the way I sit. And I'm about 50 pounds heavier than you. How much did you weigh? He told me I weighed 240 pounds. And we talked for 20 minutes about weight loss and being fat and self-esteem. And that's why he wears makeup. And that's why he dyes his hair. And that's why he did the kiss. Uh Uh-huh. You mentioned the kiss. I didn't have to ask him about the kiss. And that interview got picked up all around the country. And that was it. It was over. No one could tell me what to do. And everybody wanted to talk to me. And I was very lucky. And that was out cue, and that was that was breakfast, right? Predominantly, yeah, it was breakfast. It was breakfast, which you know you're a kind of morning person, so that's I am a morning person. That's okay. It works really, really well with international interviews. Yes, <laughs> um, if you're not doing a pre-record, um, <coughs> and, I, and I also remember when I was lucky enough to to, to visit you in in that studio. It was a very interactive show. There were yes. people calling in. Um, it was quite, a classic breakfast show, bells and whistles. But it was, it was a classic breakfast show, but not in the way that, you know, I don't think I'd, we probably not in the way that we'd have here, as in, you know, there would be people calling you, play a new track and say, right, call in and with your, you know, views on it. And because you could say anything, um, they did. And if they did, if they loved it, they loved it. And if they didn't like it, girl, no. (laughs) But here's the thing that, that um, you may not know is I built that show off of the pl- off of the blueprint of the Scott Mills afternoon drive show on oh, radio. Interesting. Okay. I went to my boss because they were like, "Do you want to do music?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'd love to do music, but I, I want to talk." Hmm. And they were like, "Well, I don't know what that looks like." Hmm. And I I recorded Scott, who I was obsessed with, hmm. and I played it for my boss, and I was like, "This is what I want to do, but me." Hmm. And they were like. 
wow, yeah, let's do it. And so, you know, I, it was very fun when I finally messaged Scott and said, I just, I've stolen your act. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure he was flattered. Oh, he loved it. Um, but yeah, I did my version of the Scott Mill show where I had a cast of characters and I played like five, six songs an hour, except on my show, we could curse and we could be vicious and we could be serious. And yeah, but we could also do what I did at Billboard. And, and I'll tell you, my proudest moment doing that show was, was introducing Adele to America. Mm. You played her for me. Okay. And I said, oh, my God, this song is amazing. It was Chasing Pavements. It was in my hometown. hometown hometown Glory would have been first, yeah. Yeah. And I played it, and then I started playing Chasing Pavements, and then I uh, found out she got a deal in America. And it was all because you you played me that track, mm-hmm. and you told me she thought she you know they picked her up for Sony, and I went to Sony and I said, when she comes to America, I have to have her on my show. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. So we booked her to come up do an interview. She um, had the flu, but she still agreed to sing. And we used to you know remember we said that glass studio. Yeah. Right, this big glass fish. We called it the fishbowl, and um, she was meant to sing in there. She did. We did the interview in a different studio. Um, we bonded, and um, we couldn't get anyone to come down and watch her. So the rep from Sony ordered lunch to lure them down, and they put the table with sandwich wraps. Right next to the right next to the studio, and they were like, "Have a sandwich and listen to this new woman named Adele." And she sang "Chasing Pavements," "Hometown," and uh, uh, "Melt My Heart to Stone." Mm. And um, I remember she—I was standing at the side of the studio at her behest, holding the bag her bagel was in that she had eaten. In case she needed to throw up. <laughs> wow. And she never threw up. Um, but she uh, remembered having a good experience and a year later came up and uh, said, I want to I just get something. I want to get your vibe on something. And so she invited me and uh, the guy who helped me book her into a studio. And she played Rolling in the Deep, uh, Someone Like You, and set fire to the rain. And she goes, what do you think is going to be my next album? And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I'm like, we need to get like, you know, the president of the company down here. And um, we couldn't get any major executives to come into the studio because they're like, who's Adele? We don't care. So we listened. And, you know, I put her on my show again. We didn't play the music because we weren't allowed to, but she talked about it. She talked about Rolling and Deep being her disco record. And um, three months later, they were like, get her back up here. And she said no. Oh. Okay. And she would not come up until a very deep negotiation for the third album. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, 
and all those people that were forced to come down and have lunch and you know watch her that first time have been dining out on that story for years i would imagine i'm sure they have if they haven't they're stupid i yeah. dine out on that story every day <laughs> Yeah, but I think is you you were the reason that, you know, you put her in that situation. I mean, you've always been very, very quick on new artists. And again, you're it's another female artist that has a story to tell that has We love a, the ladies. We and, love and, the ladies. And a, vo- and a voice. You know, if you're talking, you know, Adele, yeah. Olivia, Donna, Whitney, you know, these are all people that have unique emo- voices which emote no matter what they're saying. Yeah, or like they're... Leona was another one that yeah. we did in America first. Yeah. Um, she had literally was shaking in tears. You know, she had a shyness problem after, mm. uh, for so many years, and her her label booked her to sing "Bleeding Love," even though she really wasn't prepared to do it emotionally. And so she had a little nervous breakdown, crying. We held hands. She breathed. I said, "Just don't look out the glass. Mm. Put your back to the glass. Who gives a shit?" Mm. And she got it done. Yeah, and we became you know. So it's like you know. It's the kind of stuff that I don't think you can do right now because I think very few people are willing to take the risks that we took even as recent as five years ago. Right. What, in in putting their kind of setting out their stool and getting behind a new artist, you mean? Yeah. I think it's much harder. Yeah. I think people want, they want such a sure thing that they're missing, you know, the, you were, you were my, the last guest on my talk show, Serious Sex Number, before I put it to rest and moved to the UK. And we talked about what was a double, it was a double parter, you remember. One mm-hmm. was about your life and one was your records of the year of mm-hmm. 2020. And, you know, these were artists that you were working with who were really interesting. They were artists that hadn't had success yet. Um, and there were artists that my audience didn't know mm. because it's just harder to break through. Mm. It's much, much harder to break through. Well, it also um, takes it takes more time. And I think it's really interesting when you see an artist that all of a sudden does break through and they'll seem as if it's an overnight success. But nine times out of ten, I mean, even back in those days, someone like oh, Emily, yeah. Emily Sande, who I know we, we played first on your show, you know, that had been eight years in the making before before yeah. Helen existed. And, you know, similarly, I know Celeste that's just happened recently. That's been a long time coming. There's a lot of these people that have been going good four or five years. It's not, yeah. it's different in the, in the path. Eventually, you know, it will get there. But um, it's just, and there's more of them and there's more exposure. I mean, you know, my my favourite slash most terrifying statistic that um, I, I continually say is that every single day, 40,000 tracks are uploaded to Spotify, new ones. So, you know, in, in the heyday to- of when you were at Billboard, you know, there were barely, uh, you know, a hundred tracks a week, if that, probably. And, yeah. you know, you'd get sent, and what you'd get sent would have already been, had to be edited on the basis of the fact that it needed a studio and a budget to pay for it. Well, so, and, you know, a, a good example of that, even back then, was Lady Gaga, mm. who I also put on the radio for the first time. Um, she was managed at the time by a friend, and they were like, we can't get anything with this girl. And we think she's great. And I'm like, okay. 
name is kind of stupid. <laughs> but mm-hmm. sure, you know, do you promise you're going to give me Cindy Lauper? She was also working with Cindy Lauper at the time. And she goes, yeah, 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 of course, Cindy loves you. And so she didn't have any spare promo copies. So I had to go and fish the promo, the one promo copy that was around series from the garbage, mm. the trash can of the pop programmer who didn't even listen to it. He just tossed it. Mm. And that record was just dance. Mm. And then, you know, and again, but because it was the gay station, and because it, you know, we 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 had we were able to have her. She did my show three times before she got picked up on. You know, it was like actually that was how I met Scott because I found got it right. I did her first in America, and he did her first in the UK. And um, I remember sending a message to him on Twitter saying, "How about us both breaking Gaga?" And he was like, "Who are you?" <laughs> so we became chatty. Um, and, you know, that guy unsuccessfully blocked me from talking to her two years later because right. she'd already kind of blown up and became a product mm. of the world. But the, my point is, you know, it's about relationships. It's about being open-minded, you know. Um, it's about sometimes even looking past your own judgment, because like I said, I heard the name Lady Gaga, and I'm like, that's stupid. No one's going to buy a record by a girl named Lady Gaga. Are you out of your mind? And then I listen to the track, and I'm like, well, this is really good. Maybe she changes her name. And then I met her, and I'm like, she shut up like, you know, wrapped up in a plastic bag. <laughs> Literally wrapped up in a black paper, black plastic trash mm. bag. Mm. And um, her boobs kept falling out. And, um, and then you just think, you know what? Why not? Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, Adele happened wearing yoga pants, a tunic blouse, and a long blonde wig, a long red, red ponytail. And she was, you know, 40 pounds overweight. And people didn't think she was going to happen. Mm. Sometimes you just have to take a chance. And so that's where we come in. Yeah, definitely. And that kind of brings us back. I mean, obviously the, the station changed names and your shows, but ultimately you were right up until really the end of last year. That was, you know, it's funny how you say that what you'd really love, love to be is a DJ. I mean, you are a DJ. You were a DJ. You were a radio DJ. You weren't a club <laughs> DJ. Um and, you know, you went through, obviously, in more recent years, as you've mentioned before, various uh, medical situations that made you yes. reevaluate and probably very much helped you al- along with the last year, helped you decide to make the move that you have done. But um, is there, there must be a part of you that, that kind of misses talking to these people. Um, I miss... I miss talking to the people who create the art that they love. The problem and the reason why it was easier for me to make this move, you know, life, all the circumstances of life collided in a way that made sense for me to make a change. I'd had, you know, I had COVID. It led to life-changing illness, you know, where I was in the hospital, two operations, um, 
But also, as I said, the nature of the business changed. And so in order to have the, in order to score the bandwidth to talk to an Adele before she's Adele in, in lights, you have to, there's, there are far more uh, bills to pay. And those bills come in the form of people that you just don't find that interesting, whom you have to find a way to be interested in. Yeah. And uh, find a way to be interested in, even if you know in your heart of hearts, other people are not going to be interested in. Yeah. Um, and so the measurement between those Adele's and those people you know others are not interested in shifted in a way where I was talking to more people I didn't want to talk to anymore. So I miss talking to those young artists. And the great thing is that although I'm nowhere near famous, enough people in the industry know who I am so that if I pop on on someone's social media and I say, oh my God, you're amazing. Seven or eight times out of 10, they'll say hi and thank you. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I'll go back to it. I don't know what form yet. Mm. You and I've talked about this off mic, you know, that I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I feel the itch to be as um, mainstream as I once was, as much as I think it'd be more fun to, you know, do what I, I always admired about John Peel, for example, which is eventually he just sort of evolved into the guy people came to for cool new stuff or the guy people came to because they knew they were going to talk to someone who really cared. Mm. Um, and so what I'm discovering, you know, it's been three months since I stopped working. It's the longest I've not worked in my entire adult life is I'm only interested in people who are interesting and who really have something to say. And that might be to reminisce, because mm-hmm. I love a good reminiscence, obviously. Um, but Or who have something new to say, you know? And uh, those people are, you know, it's, it's so monetary right now that, you know, it's harder on a day like today. We're talking on a Friday, right? So I spent a few minutes before we talked looking at the new stuff that's dropped today. And I'm like, oh, I think I found two things. Well, you're very lucky if you found two. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them, and actually, no, I'm looking at them now. Both of them are by people I already knew. They're by acquaintances of mine in the industry. Yeah. I haven't heard anything like brand spanking new, by brand spanking new artists yet this week. And, you know, I'll spend some time looking, but, and that's the fun, you know, I mean, ultimately I'm still that kid who, likes to listen to things or watch things that to discover things that tell and tell them this is great. Right. When I was playing those records at a party, you know, I somehow figured out to look, flip the 45 record over and see that sometimes there was a, a part two to the record when songs came in two parts mm. and the second part would be more percussive or whatever and play that. And it would go, what's that? That's mm. fun. It's fun to sit at a table with your in-laws at a Sunday roast and say, you should listen to this. Yeah. This is great. It is a wonderful feeling, that sharing thing. And also it, it does work two ways because, yes, um, 
you know, I have spoken to you about new artists, but I mean, even if you take most recently to an incredible artist called Fancy Haygood, who I hadn't come across on my, on my radar, which is completely ridiculous because it's written by a friend of mine and I still <laughs> didn't even know about it, John Green. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I think it's great that you're still, you know, you, you don't have to do this for a job now, but you're still interested. You still will find those Oh, items. yeah. And also, you know, I feel that there's a a place even from a radio perspective where i think it's great where people do, you know that it's not genre specific and it's also not not decade specific or age specific so you know there could be a world where a fancy haygood record would sit perfectly next to a laura brannigan record you know and it's just good music and my feeling yeah. is the way that spotify works especially with younger people um and knowing and seeing people that put playlists together they don't care if a record's from 1984 or, or 2021 no they would just know no. if they like it and that will sit and I, th I think my new my new goal is to find a home where people have similar interests and are interested in me telling them about stuff. Like, for example, I didn't find Fancy Haygood because a label person called me. No. I found Fancy Haygood because he was like-minded as a queer person who had a very similar point of view to mine, who was a songwriter. And I thought, okay, first of all, what is a six foot four bearded guy doing calling himself fancy? Mm. That was way too, you know, fascinating. Then I find out that he sings like, you know, the godchild of like, you know, Patti LaBelle and Sam Harris, mm. you know, and that he has had a very interesting life where he's lived in the UK for a while and moved back to America. And I thought all these things are going to make his music very interesting. So I spent some time with his music. I hunted him down. We've become friendly. And, you know, I, my goal in life now is to find a place where I can do that, where I can find that, find that fancy Haygood because we're like-minded in some fashion and then tell people, you need to care about fancy Haygood. Do you know what I mean? And have them, you know, it doesn't, I don't feel the need anymore to be Dermot O'Leary or Andy Cohen. Hmm. I don't have that need. I used to have that need. I don't have that need anymore. No. So I don't need a million dollars and I don't need to be on a big network anymore. I've had, I've been on big, I've been on at the biggest radio station in America and I've been at the biggest magazine in the world. It's fun. Sucks sometimes. And it requires a certain kind of, you know, evolution that I'm not really interested in anymore. So we'll see. Yeah. You're just, you're, ultimately, it's, it, it goes back to you just being a fan. You're just oh, a yeah. fan of I'm music. I'm not turned on by it. I don't want, and that's the thing. I was talking to too many people I wasn't a fan of. And it, and it has to speak to you. And I think that thing you said almost at the very beginning about, you know, you're interested in in music that connects. And it doesn't matter yeah. what genre it is. It can be disco, it can be ballad, it can be anything. But you, you, you want to have a connection with the person that's responsible for performing it. And also yeah. what's great is you're you still have that wonderful mystical side of not knowing too much about, knowing enough but not knowing too much about how the records are made. 
So you can still react to them as a piece of work. You know, you can actually just go and 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 the two only important things that matter, even if we talk about reviews and everything we do, the two most important things are, do I like it or don't I like it? Yeah. It's, it's, simple, on the go. it's as simple yeah. as that. I mean, there's varying versions of that, which is kind of, do I hate it or, oh my God, I'm crying my eyes out, which is a sort of secondary thing. Um, but I think it is, I think your emotional connection to the music is the thing that endears people that make it to want to talk to you because they can see that that's the bit you're interested in. You're not trying to get some quote out of them. You're not trying to get some headline. You're just going, I really love what you do. Talk to me about how you do it. And that's where the really good stuff comes from. You know, um, if, you're, if, if, if you're thinking, I must get her to say something that will get me written about in a newspaper or talked about on another show, then I'm not here with you and we're not having this experience. Mm. Um, and isn't that a loss, right? Mm. So that, for example, you know, <clears throat> I'm actually pretty good with the fact that I haven't talked to Adele in a while because I don't think she's the same girl now. Um, after a while, you become rehearsed, you become polished, you become rote. It's the nature of the beast. It's also the nature of survival. Hmm. And I think um, I am much more happy that I wasn't thinking about like, okay, tell me about your divorce. Tell me about that. Instead, we were talking about how she almost swallowed the, the, the receipt in her bagel bag hmm. and how funny it was. And, you know, or like the fact that, you know, Little things, you know, little, little, teeny, tiny things, you know, I'm much happier to have said, you know, I didn't get a ton of pictures with Ed Sheeran when I interviewed him for that very first album. But I'm very proud of the fact that we sat there, we shared a beer and I said, so when do you go home? And he said, well, my record goes number one. And then two weeks later, the record went number one. And I sent a message to him via his manager. And I'm like, so is he going home? And he goes, he is for mm. two weeks. Mm. Um, that's way more valuable. Yeah. You know, because not only do I get to tell you and anyone's listening to this right now about that, and that humanizes them, but also it makes my life better. Mm. You know, I, I, I can watch Ed Sheeran on TV and think about how he's, he was once that guy who was like, I just want people to listen to my record. Yeah. And that's an awesome, that's like the greatest thing. That's the greatest thing. Yeah. So you've said sort of just before we did this, we started recording that you are at the happiest place that you've been yes. for a long time. Um, oh my gosh. You know, so happy. Re re ready to do things. I mean, I'm, I will await my invite to see you DJ at your local pub. You know, a, it's going to happen with a, now. With a pint of John Smith's on the side. And <laughs> he, um, Steve knows that that's my ale of choice now. It's the ale of choice, but I, I'm, you know, uh, I, I can definitely see that happening and we will have a chat about how to get you to do that. But, um, you know, happiness especially after certainly in the in the most recent years 
there's nothing more important. So, you know, you don't have to rush to do anything. There's a book at some point and you need to start writing it because I've only just scratched the surface. It should also be said that this is this entire podcast is Larry's fault because he's the kind of (laughs) first person who suggested that it might be worth um, me doing it. And I am similarly shy and do not like doing things like this, but um, the encouragement and, uh, and and also having you as a friend for more ca- more years than I care to mention, um, you know, going on over thirty at least. It is over the thirty. Annoying, you had reddish blonde hair. I had hair, and it was dark. I know the annoying <laughs> kid that approached, who came up to you at uh, the new music seminar in nineteen ninety or something. Um, and we've and we've stayed in touch, and now we're actually, you know, there is we are going to actually see each other in the flesh this this year. So, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to that. I am too. And, you know, one of the great gifts, not only of moving here, but of this terrible moment in, in world history is that it's helped me identify or re-identify the people that are really special to me. Mm. You know, life has been up until 2020, life was for, I think, a lot of us. And it was definitely for me about distraction. I was mm. distracted from all the things I wanted to do. And, you know, I had this very famous American actress named Valerie Harper come up to me. Do you know who she is? She used to be on a sitcom here in America. And she died of cancer. She was really unwell the last time we spoke. And she looked at me and she said, she took my hand and she said, I can already tell that you're missing your life. And if there's anything that I could change, it would be I would, would not miss my life as much as I have. Don't miss your life. Wow. And um, it wasn't until COVID and my second brush with death in less than 10 years that I decided to stop missing my life. And the wonderful thing has happened. Now I talk to you. Mm. I talk to our friend Paul, Mm. who in Birmingham. I talk to this wonderful guy named Danny, who's an author whom I've always admired but never had time for. And the people who were distracting to me are gone. Mm. They've just naturally fallen away. I didn't even have to do anything. Mm. And, you know, you learn really quickly about the quality of life and the quality of relationships. You know, I've always admired you so much. And and when I told you, yes, do a podcast, that was after I was saying to you, you know, you should do public speaking. You should teach a course. You're very good at this. You have so many important stories. You've been on my show like dozens of times. And I'm like, do you realize that you're like one of my biggest, you know, your episodes of my old show were among the most listened to. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's easier to your do numbers, it. Your numbers in industry terms, your numbers were, uh, were equivalent to the numbers I would get from movie stars and pop stars. Well, that's... And that's why I said that to you. Mm, I think that's... I said that to you with the, the exasperation I'm speaking with right now. It's like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 fun. It's it's it, it's really fun, and I should. And then say, the book. And then the book. So yeah, you're gonna and do the, the book. book. Um, I'll just quickly say Paul Reynolds, who you were talking about, is an incredible blogger. He's he is the, oh, the greatest. If you, if you ever want to find a thousand different ways of saying amazing, just read what Paul writes. <laughs> Paul has the best. He's and the most he's eloquent famous. man. I think he's seventy five years old. and He looks twenty. <laughs> he's amazing and he introduced me to rod thomas bright light bright light who's a big yeah. star now yeah exactly well listen i look forward to seeing you for a, a pint and a bap and a dj set 
uh, in Wales uh, with your lovely husband very, very soon. And thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's okay. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.